Well, amen. Uh, great to be with you. Thank you so much, Dwayne. I tell you, uh, it is just an honor uh, to be here. I've really enjoyed getting to know uh, Dwayne. And look at this group. What a great group on a Saturday. Y'all couldn't find anything better to do on a, on a Saturday than to come out and hear some guy you never met uh, talk about the Word of God and what's coming down the pike. By the way, I noticed the first four uh, rows here are empty. Uh, that's how I know I'm in a Baptist church. But anyway, um, the uh, pastor wanted me to tell you for future sessions after the break, he is planning to put a $100 bill underneath one of the pews in these first four rows. And so you might want to come come sit up here. Maybe you'll get uh, get an extra 100 bucks out of the deal. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, hey, uh, I noticed we've got a handout here. I told Pastor Dwayne in advance if he wanted to kind of since he listens to some of my stuff and has read some of my stuff, if he wanted to put some of my more salient, valuable points down on handouts, and you could see what he did, and there's nothing but blank lines here. So apparently that doesn't bode very well for what I have to say, but uh, if you want to pick one of these up and take notes, uh, uh, what we're encouraging you to do is uh, if you have questions, we're saving those till the very end, so make a mental note or jot them down in your notebooks here, and on the final session tomorrow... Uh, we're going to dedicate the whole session to just Q&A, and I love those types of things. It's where I learn. Uh, people ask great questions, and uh, I promise if I don't know the answer that I will uh, just make something up, so you'll get an answer uh, one way or the other. If you're not going to be able to be here tomorrow, you can always reach out to me by email. I love to dialogue and talk about the, the Word of God, so my cards are on the table out there in the lobby. You can see uh, my daughter, Brooke, who's out there. Uh, with us at the table. So we're so glad to be here. Um, you know, as we left uh, Colorado, we got out ahead of a huge, big snowstorm. We live in the mountains at about 7,600 feet elevation, and we get tons of snow. And so we ended up having to leave a day early to get out because we got over a foot. And, and if we had waited till that fell, we might not have gotten out. So we ended up scrambling to get out early. But the more we headed east and south, the higher the temperature got. And we pulled into Florida, and it actually at one point was 91 degrees. Now, i got to tell you, where we come from, if there's a 9 in the temperature, it's usually not the first digit. In fact, it's usually the only digit where we come from. But it is great to be wearing short sleeves and just enjoying some, uh, some warmer weather. In the first session, what I'd like to do uh, this morning is just set the stage for why Bible prophecy matters. Now, I understand that you're here because you have an interest in Bible prophecy, presumably, and so uh, maybe we're preaching to the choir a little bit here, but sadly, in this day and age, a lot of people are not interested in the end of the story. A lot of people are just not interested in what God's Word has to say about His plan of the ages. And so to introduce our, uh, our topic, I want to tell you a little story. This is a story that's at the beginning of one of my books out there in the table, but I think it'll make the point quite well. Jim was in serious trouble. He loved to take his father's old fishing boat out on those warm summer days. It helped him to relax, thinking of all the good memories he had shared with his father. Now it was only Jim and his faithful black lab shadow. Growing up on the shores of Lake Superior meant that Jim knew all the risks of the big lake. There was something, that was something his dad had made sure of. And Jim was certain that high pressure had settled in, which meant no clouds in the sky, and the waves were expected to be less than two feet. It looked like the perfect day to head out far past the Apostle Islands, but that's when the trouble began. Jim and his dog Shadow had barely arrived when Jim first noticed that the waves seemed to be much rougher than originally forecasted. 
Shadow probably noticed it first. The clear skies were giving way to clouds, and turning on the weather radio was the first order of business. The National Weather Service was now warning of a quick-moving cold front that was coming in from the northwest. This ferocious storm was about to turn the calm water into a violent nightmare. Jim began to think he had another problem. Not only were the waves getting higher, but it appeared the boat was starting to sit a little bit lower in the water. This could only mean one thing. They were taking on water. Jim headed below deck to see how bad it was. The water filling the cabin confirmed his worst fears. There was simply no way to see where the water was coming from. Jim started to think through his options. Eventually, the water would kill the engines and the power. Could he make it all the way back to shore? Seemed impossible. Could he make it to one of the islands? Perhaps a freighter in the shipping lanes would spot him in time. Jim knew there was only one thing to do. He put in a desperate call for help, hoping that he could be rescued. Having grown up in the region, Jim knew there was a Coast Guard rescue station in Duluth, Minnesota. He also knew there were smaller posts on the, <clears throat> the southern shore of Wisconsin. Jim put in the call on the Marine radio, and the jagged voice on the other end instilled comfort. He relayed his situation and location, but then the radio went dead. It turned out that Jim had even less time than he first thought. Enough water had come on board to kill the power and both engines. Those small two-foot waves had grown significantly higher. At some point, Jim and Shadow were going to be in the water. The water temperature at this time of year would not be much more than 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And Jim knew that once they were into the water, they had less than an hour before hypothermia would set in. With the waves crashing upon them, hope of lasting that long was unthinkable. Had the Coast Guard heard him? Would the Coast Guard even be able to find him in this storm? As these questions raced through his mind, he recognized that it was time to abandon ship. His feet were already wet, and his boat would soon be underwater. Strapping his life jacket on, Jim and Shadow plunged in. Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, I'd like to talk to you about why Bible prophecy matters. Uh, by the way, are you wondering what happened to Jim and Shadow? Yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> you know, we don't like it when we don't know the end of a story, do we? We would never accept it with a good novel or a movie, so why do Christians accept not knowing about the end times and God's plan for mankind. If you want to know the end of that story, you'll have to take a peek at the book out in the, in the lobby. But you see my point. See, the closer we get to the years 2025, 2026, etc., which, as we're going to talk about this weekend, the Luciferian elite have telegraphed for many years, over 100 years, in fact, is the end game it's their goal line for establishing the new world order from Satan's perspective, then the more urgent it becomes to teach the whole counsel of God and teach God's end times plan. You know, I've been studying Bible prophecy for more than 40 years, and I've been teaching and writing about it for more than 30 years. And one thing that I've noticed is that most Christians today have a very anthropocentric view of the Bible. In other words, they think the Bible is exclusively all about personal salvation, personal Christian living, life here and now on the earth, and they tend to become 
consumed by that speck on the timeline of eternity that begins when we're born and ends when we die. Now, make no mistake, of course, personal salvation, redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ our Savior is crucial. The Bible reveals that the only way a person can be rescued from the penalty of sin is through Jesus' death and resurrection and through personal faith alone in him. But there is more to the Bible than individual redemption. And there is more to human life than that period of time between the cradle and the grave. The Bible is not simply a book of personal redemption. It's a book that reveals God's plan for all time, his entire plan for creation. God is working out his plan for the whole world. And the Bible explains that plan. And, as you might expect, that plan has a beginning and an end. Just like the Bible itself. God's word reveals his plan of the ages, his plan for all creation, from beginning to end. Word for word and cover to cover. So, uh, as we think about God's plan of the ages, I, I like to chart it out this way. The Bible tells a story that has a beginning and it has an end. It starts out with the creation side of things, with the creation of the world as revealed in Genesis 1 through 11, and the creation of the nations, and then the creation of Israel. And then, of course, the creation of the church when we get to the New Testament. And all of this is part of creation. But as we know, mankind fell when we sinned, creating the curse of sin upon all of creation. And so God's plan of the ages also involves a redemptive side. It starts with the redemption of the church through the rapture, then the restoration of Israel into the land, and then the retribution of the nations when Christ comes back at the Battle of Armageddon, and ultimately the redemption of all creation with the new heavens and the new earth. Now here's the thing. Along the way, God's plan for the universe, God is doing any number of things as revealed to us in his word. First of all, he has a plan for the salvation of individual men. He also has a plan for his chosen nation, Israel, whom God has not forsaken. God has a plan for the church, very clearly. God has a plan for angels. God has a plan for demons. He has a plan for all uh, created life, except possibly cats. I'm not sure if God has a plan for cats or if that was just an oversight. I plan to ask him about that uh, someday. But the point is, God's plan involves ultimately the Bible coming full circle once again to a recreation in sinless perfection. So the Bible starts with the pre-fall condition in Eden and it ends with the new heavens and the new earth. So, by the way, all of the charts that you're going to see throughout the weekend uh, are, going to, are available in our chart book on the table if you see some that you're interested in. But... Uh, you know, in the Bible, we see a clear beginning and a clear end. By, by the way, that's the reason the Bible starts with these three words. It's actually two words in Hebrew, but in the beginning. And it amazes me how many believers read these first three words in our English translation of the Bible and don't naturally ask, well, okay, that's the beginning. What about the end? The average believer can quote Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But do they understand that that beginning necessarily has an end, like any a story? But God's plan of the ages doesn't really start here. This is where his self-revelation to mankind begins. But God's plan really begins after the fall, as God began to reveal to us in his word how he's going to get us out of the predicament we got ourselves into. Once Adam and Eve fell, bringing the curse of sin upon creation... 
That's when the plan was set in motion. We see God's word here to the serpent when he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, capital S, referring to the Christ child, the Messiah, God's son and our Savior. And he says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the beginning of this cosmic battle between God and Satan. Satan got kicked out of heaven after trying to usurp the throne and take over all of creation. And if he, since he couldn't have heaven and his coup attempt failed, he set his sights on the earth. And this is the devil's playground, and ever since then he's been trying to take over the earth. And he's doing so, as we're going to talk about this weekend, with the help of earthly co-conspirators, his earthly accomplices, the Luciferian elite, as they call themselves. But, you know, a lot of questions spring from this verse. Like, first of all, how can a woman have a seed? Uh, that, that's impossible. In fact, in, in the Hebrew, you would never use the phrase her seed because the seed comes from the male. But who is this seed, capital S, of a woman? Who is the serpent's seed? And how will the seed of the serpent one day bruise the heel of the woman's seed? And how will the seed of the woman crush the head of the serpent? The word translated bruise here, by the way, unless otherwise indicated on the screen, I'm using the New King James Version, but the word translated bruise in this verse is the Hebrew word shivpah, and it means to grip hard or to crush. The idea is, depending on where you're gripping, you can do some pretty serious damage. For example, in Job, it's used metaphorically here to speak of the devastating uh, things that Job faced, uh, the multiplying wounds uh, without cause. But if you go back to Genesis 3.15, the serpent may grip hard at a relatively harmless part of Christ. In other words, he won't be able to destroy him. He's going to bruise his heel. Pretty, you know, of all the places that could be injured, I mean, that's one that's probably least problematic, right? Whereas the head is the most vulnerable spot, and if you crush someone's head, it's over. And that's what Christ is going to do to Satan someday. But among the many other questions that emanate from this very early reference to the end of the story, it's almost like God tells us what he's going to tell us, then he tells us for 66 books, and then he tells us again what he told us at the end. Um, but when will this happen? That's the big question. And again, you don't have to read any more than halfway through the third chapter of Genesis to see this plan beginning to take place. Shape. So right at the book of beginnings, that's what Genesis is, and right after in the beginning, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, we see the plot line develop. But amazingly, most believers are content to leave that plot line unresolved. I mean, it may be one thing to sort of, by the time this first session is over, have forgotten about Jim and Shadow, and maybe a few days from now you'll remember, oh yeah, that story, that was a pretty interesting story. I wonder what happened to Jim and Shadow. That's fine, you may go look it up, you may not. But this is dealing with all of creation and human history and what's the plan. And so we go from a cosmic battle that ensued in the garden all the way to the end when we see a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. This is the end of the story. This is the culmination of God's plan of the ages. Bible prophecy matters because God is working out his plan toward a logical conclusion. And don't miss this. We are getting closer and closer to the end of this plan. God's plan of the ages will culminate in the return of Christ to make 
all things new. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Those who are obsessed with life on this earth and ignore the entire subject of Bible prophecy are ignoring the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would have said. The Apostle Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most pitiable. Why do you think the Bible, God's revelation of the plan of the ages, his revelation about his plan for human history and all creation, why do you think it ends with these words? The last two verses in the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Again, even the most novice Christian can recite Genesis 1-1, but how many can recite the end of the story? The last two verses in the Bible. Bible prophecy matters because we want the words that God left us with in his word to echo in our hearts until he comes. Sadly, Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And 2 Peter 3 reminds us that in these last days, people are going to be scoffing and mocking and disregarding Bible prophecy. I call churches today that don't teach Bible prophecy the 84% club. And that comes from the simple mathematical calculation that we know from a survey of Scripture that one-third of the Bible is prophetic. One-third. Half of that has not been fulfilled yet. So half of one-third is roughly 16%. So that means if you're ignoring unfulfilled prophecy, and by the way, in the next session, we're, I'm going to give you the top 10 most important unfulfilled prophecies in Scripture. But if you're ignoring unfulfilled prophecy in Scripture, you're ignoring 16% of the Bible. And sadly, many Christians are content to go to a church that preaches 84% of the Bible, but not me. I believe God gave us everything we need for life and godliness and everything in his word he wants us to study. And especially in these last days, it is important uh, to study that 16% of unfulfilled Bible prophecy. So let me give you from God's word itself uh, several reasons that uh, we should study end times prophecy. Again, I know I'm somewhat preaching to the choir because you're here coming out to a prophecy conference, and thank you for coming, by the way. But it's, it's helpful, especially for the naysayers, or maybe some of you are, were dragged here by a friend or stumbled in providentially, and you're kind of wondering, oh, what's the big deal? But mainly because we want to be able to defend the reality of God's word when it comes to Bible prophecy. Let me give you some biblical reasons why we should study Bible prophecy. First of all, as we've already said, it tells us the end of the story. It tells us the end of the story. Uh, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. So we would never be satisfied, you know, reading a novel two-thirds of the way through and think, oh, okay, I'll, I'm done. Or walking out two-thirds of the way through a movie, although these days there are plenty of movies I've walked out of or wished I had. But uh, you're not normally content until you hear the rest of the story. Another reason is it's, that we should study Bible prophecy is that it is profitable like all of Scripture. What does God's Word say? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The word 
Scripture there is the Greek word graphe. It means the written writings of God's word. It's not just the ideas that are inspired. It's the very words on the page. When the quill hit the sheepskin, the Holy Spirit carried along the writers of Scripture so that God gave us exactly what he wants us to have. And as all Scripture is profitable, the word profitable there is a fellow. It means uh, to heap up or accumulate. In other words, when you study God's word, it's helping you accumulate what? Well, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction of righteousness. So what is doctrine? Doctrine tells us what to believe. What is reproof? It tells us what not to believe. What is correction? It, in, this, in this kind of this reverse chiasm here, what is correction? It tells us what, how not to behave, what we shouldn't do. And it's also profitable for instruction or training in righteousness. It tells us what we should do. So when you get right down to it, what else do you need in life? You need to know what to believe and what not to believe, how to behave and how not to behave. And if you've got those four things covered, you can navigate this unsettled world and, and sin-stricken world pretty well. Well, guess where we get those things? From God's word. And by the way, Bible prophecy, as we're going to see in a second, gives us a number of data points that help us with these very things. What we should believe, uh, you know, about the return of the Lord, how we should behave in light of the return of the Lord, and so forth. But notice he goes on that the man of God may be complete. Man of God here is, is reference to the believer. So it's not males only. Uh, all believers can be thoroughly equipped and built up in the faith for every good work because of Scripture. So if you want to be 84% sanctified and 84% walking with the Lord and 84% spiritually mature, okay, don't study Bible prophecy. But if you want to strive for becoming full and complete and mature, you need to study all of Scripture, and that includes Bible prophecy. So it tells us the end of the story. It's profitable like all of Scripture. It also gives us hope for the future. It gives us hope for the future. Now, this is very important, and this is a pretty easy one to understand, because at the essence, that's what, at its essence, that's what Bible prophecy is. It's the good news in the midst of the bad news. Now, we know, spiritually speaking, the good news is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, so that every human being that's born dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, can, by simple faith alone in Christ alone, be made right with a holy God. As we just sung about, freely justified, Romans 3.24. We're justified freely by His grace, right? It's simple faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel is so simple, a child can understand it. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, the older we get, the harder it becomes for people to place their faith in Christ because the devil is blinding men's hearts to the gospel and we become convinced through false teaching and through our own pride that, you know, we can't possibly get something as valuable as eternal life for free, you know. But so we think we got to earn it. We got to work for it. We got to perform better. We got to do more. Somehow we've got to earn it. But you tell a, a child, hey, you're lost in sin and, and your sin consigns you to a little place of torment called hell. And if, if, you'll, if you'll simply trust in Christ who paid your sin debt on your behalf, rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and is the only one who can save you. If you'll trust in him, you can be saved. And a child who understands faith says, okay, yeah, I understand. I'll trust in Jesus. See, salvation is not a two-way contract. It's not a bilateral agreement between you and God where you come to the table and say, okay, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop sinning, forsake all my sins, turn my life around, promise to follow you, pledge allegiance to you, give everything back to you, and surrender my life to you from now until I die. And he goes, okay, good. We've got a deal. 
That's not how salvation works. Salvation is a unilateral gift, and it's free. Free to us, but very expensive to God. It costs God his own son, and it costs his son his own shed blood and death. So Jesus really did pay it all. And even many believers who love to sing that song, sing, Jesus paid it all, but they live their life, Jesus paid most of it. And they think somehow they've got to earn their right standing before a holy God. But the Bible tells us Jesus really did pay it all. So there's this spiritual hope of new life. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, John 3. Jesus is talking there to Nicodemus, and he's talking about the, literally the phrase born again. The word again there is anothen. In Greek, it means from above. In fact, the only place in the New Testament where anothen is ever translated with the English word again is in John 3. Every other place it's used, it's translated from above or uh, you know, from the top. For example, in, in James, uh, I think it's James, yeah, James 1, every good and perfect gift is anothen, from above. Or in the Gospels, when the veil in the temple at the time Christ died was rent in two from top, anothen, to bottom, right? Anothen. So what was Jesus saying to Nicodemus when he says you've got to be born from above? He's saying, look, you've been born once physically of your mother's womb, but that's not going to get you into the kingdom. You've got to be born spiritually. You've got to be born from above. You've got to experience a second birth. Now, because of the way Nicodemus, who had never heard of the spiritual rebirth, understood and was confused by the statement that the King, the King James and later the New King James chose to translate it born again because, remember, Nicodemus said, I'm not sure what you mean. I'm paraphrasing. But he said, I'm not sure what you mean, Lord. How can I go into my mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, no, no, no. That's, I'm not talking about the physical birth. I'm talking about the spiritual birth. You've been born once. That's fine. But if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born again. From above, you got to experience the spiritual birth, and that is true of every human being since Adam and Eve. The Bible says, "Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned." Romans five twelve. And so we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians two one. D David said, "In sin my mother conceived me." You are a sinner from the moment of conception. You don't become a sinner when you sin. You sin because that's what sinners do, and you're born a sinner. And we're all lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to be reborn. That's why Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So we're spiritually reborn. Now, how does that happen? By faith. By faith. Again, more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. So we have hope spiritually through Christ. And, and, I, and as I've often said, if you're born only once, you're going to die twice. If you've only experienced the physical birth and never experienced the rebirth by faith alone in Christ alone, then you've got two deaths in your future. One physically, and the second death that the Bible talks about in Revelation 20 at the great white throne judgment, the second death. But here's the good news, and here's the hope. If you're born twice... You only have to experience one death, and that death has no power over you. For the believer who's been born not only physically, like all human flesh, but also born from above by faith in Christ, death is simply the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. Death is that moment where we instantly transfer into the arms of our Savior in heaven. Paul said to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. 
So if you're born once, you've got to die twice. But if you're born twice, you only have to die once. And I always like to point out, especially since we're at a prophecy conference, for some people, some believers who are alive at the time of the rapture, you don't even have to die once. And I, if I could sign up for that, I would. I actually already have signed up for it. I just don't know when it's going to happen, right? So hopefully it'll happen today. So uh, that would be okay with me. What a great illustration at a prophecy conference if the rapture were to actually happen, Pastor Dwayne. I mean, I can't, you know, yeah, that would be great. Um, so back to Bible prophecy. Not only does God's word give us hope spiritually to be made right with a holy God, because of the shed blood of Christ. And by the way, I can't emphasize enough that it's a free gift, right? The Bible ends, in addition to these words that we've seen about Bible prophecy and his return, it ends with, whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life freely. Reason so many adults have trouble with the gospel is because they think they've got to come arms loaded up with all this stuff to give to the Lord. Did you know the Bible, not one place from cover to cover, says in order to get to heaven, you've got to give something to God? God's the giver, we're the receiver. John 1, 12, to as many as received him. John 3, 16, Jesus said, for God's the world that he gave his only begotten son. One giver, one receiver. Guess which one we are. And so, so many adults who have not trusted in Christ and him alone for salvation have their arms filled with stuff to give the Lord and, and they're coming to the altar trying to find a place to put it down and, and God is just saying, if you'll just get rid of all that stuff and just come, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim, you can find grace. Grace is not something you can earn. By definition, it's free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. And so you come, nothing in my hand I bring, you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. And today I'm placing my faith in the only one who can save me. And in that instant, Jesus says, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. The simplest statement of the gospel in all the Bible is John 6, 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, Jesus said. It's that simple. But the good news goes beyond just our personal redemption, as we said at the outset of this session. It also involves the physical return of Christ and the making of all things new. So Paul tells us in Romans 8, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. He goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians that we are to comfort one another with these words. Did you realize every passage in the New Testament, and we're going to, get, we're going to quickly go over these in the second session, uh, that talks about the rapture includes some encouragement or exhortation to comfort? Because unlike the second coming, when Christ comes in judgment with a sword proceeding out of his mouth to tread the winepress and fury of Almighty God, the wrath of Almighty God, the rapture, he's coming to rescue us from the wrath to come. And that's comforting. That's comforting. That is why it's called the blessed uh, hope in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope in glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I did a podcast uh, from my hotel room a couple days ago in which I talked about how in Acts 1, the Bible tells us that this same Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he sits in waiting, by the way, Psalm 110, until his enemies have been made his footstool. Not everything has been made under his footstool today, uh, but that day is coming. A, a day is coming, a, a day of vengeance of our God. 
But as he sits on the throne of waiting, he's he's gonna come back. And Acts 1 tells us as the disciples stood there you know, waiting for him after he went up as if they thought he was going to grow up, grab the keys to the kingdom from God and come right back down. They're just sitting there kind of waiting. And then these men in white raiment appear and say, uh, you know, what are you, what are you waiting for? Just go back to Jerusalem. This same Jesus whom you saw go up will come in like manner, but it's not time yet. And, and, and 2000 years later, we still wait for his return. We still look for that blessed hope. And sadly, hope begins to wane the longer it goes on. And so we don't have time to trace the view of Bible prophecy throughout church history, but it's suffice it to say that long about the 300s and 400s, the time of Origen and Augustine, the church got tired of waiting. So they began to twist and manipulate the scriptures with a little help from the Roman Catholic Church into suggesting that, well, we are the kingdom, that this is it. You know, that the, the, everything God promised was all metaphorical and spiritual, and the kingdom is in our hearts today. And so that's why for throughout the Middle Ages and Dark Ages and into up until the Reformation, most believers were replacement theologians, because that's what they were taught. And keep in mind that for most of that, those many centuries, believers didn't have access to the Bible themselves. They just had to trust what the church told them, the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, for a long period of time, if you were caught reading the Bible, you'd be burned at the stake. But once the printing press happened and once the Bible began to be disseminated and people could once again read the Bible for themselves after the Protestant Reformation, you see this resurgence of interest in the return of Christ because the Bible is not that complicated. And when you read it in its plain, literal, normal sense, Jesus says, I'm coming again, as we looked at the last two verses there in Revelation. So the Bible tells us the end of the story. It's profitable like all scripture and it gives us hope for the future, but number four, it also provides motivation for the present. You know, I got to tell you, if, if I didn't understand Bible prophecy, and I've been a student of Bible prophecy since I was just a kid, you know, I grew up in a Christian family. My parents were a very positive influence in, in my life biblically. I came to faith as a young six year old boy, surrendered to preach as a young 15 year old uh, boy, and my grandfather was also a pastor, and, and he uh, had a great interest in end times uh, prophecy. But if, if, if I didn't understand the end of the story, life would be pretty depressing. You know, if I got out of bed every day and, and I thought, this is the kingdom, man, I'd be thinking, no offense, God, but you really oversold it. I mean, that, that's not the picture I came away with of the kingdom when I read your word. Nothing about what's going on in this world today resembles the kingdom that's presented in scripture nothing in fact when you properly understand scripture and and we're going to get into these after lunch we got a couple of edgy sessions after lunch so i don't think people are going to fall asleep i mean i know what they will have just eaten and it wouldn't be the first time i put somebody to sleep but i promise you you know we're going to be talking about some stuff that uh will either make you particularly interested in the rest of the conference or make you leave and never come back because you're so mad at the things that I'm going to say. So after lunch, we're going to look at the, the, the uh, end times plan from the enemy's perspective and what he's doing to usher in the one world system politically, religiously, and economically. So if you read scripture and you understand it in its plain, normal, literal sense, 
you see just the opposite of what a lot of people think today in this kingdom now theology of we're living in the kingdom and, 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 and this is getting better and better and better. I don't know what planet they're on, but the world is not getting better and better and better. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And we know that not only intuitively, but we know that because that's what God's word says. The newsflash is depravity is a degenerative disease. It does not get better over time. It does not self-correct. It gets worse and worse and worse. 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul says, evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse. And in the Greek, that means they're getting worse and worse. I mean, there's really no other way to explain it. Worse and worse means worse and worse. And so uh, someday, and the timetable is known only to the Lord, uh, God's going to say enough's enough. He's going to call the church home, his bride. And then, uh, and then that final 16% of unfulfilled prophecy begins to unfold you know, sequentially after that. At the back of my uh, eschatology book, What Lies Ahead, I've got an appendix that's called Sequential Order of End Times Events, and it kind of maps out many of the key end times events that await future fulfillment. So thinking about the end times gives us some motivation. For example, 1 John 2, 28, I was talking to Brother Duane before the service, and he was talking about, you know, how cool it would be when if Christ were to come back to for us to be sharing the gospel with someone or having our devotion or praying. You know, that's what I hope, right? I don't, I, I don't want him to come back when I'm, you know, grumbling and complaining about the traffic on I-95 like I was all day yesterday, right? Um, and, uh, but John tells us, now little children, abide in him. By the way, the word abide there, it's the Greek word meno. It means to remain in close fellowship with. He's t- talking to believers here. That's why he calls them little children. And he's saying, hey, stay close to the Lord. Walk with him. So why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Nothing to do with heaven or hell here. A believer's home in heaven is secure, as First uh, S. 5 makes it clear, whether we're asleep or awake, meaning actively watching and serving the Lord, walking in the light, not the darkness, or not. You know, we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. But wouldn't it be great to be caught up at a time when we're on fire for the Lord and walking with him? So it gives us motivation for the present. Uh, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Again, last chapter of the Bible. I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now, that's not talking about heaven. We know that because you don't get heaven based on your works. The Bible makes that clear. The theme verse for our ministry, Titus 3, 5, says, Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it's a gift of God. Not of works, same Greek construction as Titus 3, 5, not by works, in other words, uh, lest anyone should boast. So, you know, Romans 4, Romans 11, again and again you see this contrast between those who try to be saved by works, which can't do, because God doesn't grade on the curve. Did you realize you could be 99.9% righteous and still end up in hell? <laughs> because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you got to be perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect. And James says, even if you keep the whole law but stumble in the smallest point, you're guilty of it all. And since we don't become sinners when we sin, we're born sinners, and that's what sinners do, they sin. You know, even if you manage to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard and quit cold turkey and listen to every Dr. Phil and Oprah Winfrey self-help book you can find, and you manage to be 99.9% righteous, that's not enough. Getting into heaven is not like an SAT score, where if you're in the 99th percentile, wow, you're going to Harvard, right? No, no. If you're in the 99th percentile, you're going to hell. Because you've got to be perfect. You have to have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to you. 
That's what the Bible talks about as the doctrine of imputation. So we are justified, that means declared righteous, by faith. And that's how we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. That's true of every human being that ever walked the face of the earth. Father Abraham was justified, declared righteous, by faith. Every human being that's ever been saved is, is saved by faith. That means they are justified or declared righteous. So here's the thing. Once you get saved, positionally, you are righteous, perfectly righteous. And when you stand before the gates of heaven someday, God sees the righteousness of Christ in you, not your sinful condition. Now, until that day, as we live out our days in this sin-stricken earth, we still have that fleshly nature. And sometimes our practical behavior is not going to comport with our positional righteousness. It should. Every believer should live out the righteousness that we've been declared in Christ. And ideally, that's what we do. Sometimes we walk in the flesh, though, and we produce not the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the flesh. And that's true as long as we're on this earth. But thankfully, that has no bearing on our position in Christ. Our position in Christ can never change. If you're a Christian today, you'll be a Christian tomorrow, period. Nothing can change that, thankfully. We didn't earn it. We can't lose it. But our practice, the goal for believers while we're topside this earth, is for our practice to resemble our position. And if you're walking in Christ, you're going to produce the righteousness of Christ. If you're walking in the old man, you're going to produce the, the, the unrighteousness of the old man. So the reward that he's talking about here is the reward of the Bema judgment, which we're going to talk about in the second session, one of the ten prophecies that awaits future uh, fulfillment. Another reason we should study end-time prophecies is it puts life in perspective. I mean, it really does. It reminds us that our, our t life on the timeline of eternity is just a speck, this life on earth. Our life on earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. We become so consumed with today and yesterday and tomorrow, the, the, the anxieties of yesterday, the worries of tomorrow, you know, and we realize, you know what, if you're a believer, your citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through, right? It really puts things in perspective. That's why Paul said, set your mind on things above, where, not on things on earth, for you're, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a day that will be. And a great reunion in the sky when we see not only our Savior face to face, but all of our loved ones who know the Lord that have gone before us. And a lot of people, again, don't connect, sadly, this perspective with end times. But I put all three verses on the screen here because you have a lot of pseudo-spiritual believers today that, that believe in replacement theology and there is no future earthly kingdom and we're living in the kingdom today. And they talk about, yeah, you should set your mind on spiritual things and this Christian hedonism and all this other stuff. But they forget that that perspective is tied to when Christ who is our life appears. It's waiting and looking for the blessed hope. That's what gives us hope. That's what helps us get out of bed in the morning. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most pitiable. So it puts life in perspective. It also authenticates Scripture by acknowledging the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. It is amazing to me how many students of Scripture readily acknowledge those prophetic scriptures that have already been fulfilled. You know, Christ was literally born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Christ was born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. 
Christ was the suffering servant, the, the, the servant songs of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, for example. And yet, somehow, when you get to the passages that refer to his second coming, they change their hermeneutic. And now all of a sudden, well, these are going to be fulfilled literally, you know, spiritually, not literally, metaphorically, symbolically, right? The first 483 years of Daniel's famous 490-year plan, all fulfilled literally to the day, from the decree of Artaxerxes to the triumphal entry of Christ. And yet somehow the final seven years of that 490-year plan are metaphorical. We're living in them today. No, by studying Bible prophecy, it reminds us God is a covenant-keeping God. His prophecies will be fulfilled precisely as they said they would. He's proven himself, and we can count on end times prophecies coming true. And then finally, it inspires worship in the sovereign creator who is in complete control of human history. And, uh, you know, that's comforting. <laughs> you know, there's so much uncertainty in the world, right? Um, you know, we, we, we have a military that can shoot down a Boy Scout balloon project and not have any idea what it is. <laughs> and, and, and if they can't figure out, you know, what's floating in our skies with all of the billions of tax dollars that we spend on our military, then that, that's pretty sad. Uncertainty, right? We don't have that uncertainty when it comes to God. He is sovereign and he is in complete control of human history. So I've got to speed up because I want to finish this session here in the next uh, few minutes. But I wanted to kind of explain why we should study Bible prophecy. And then I want to look at the big uh, picture. Uh, when we get to the last days in God's plan of the ages, we should be even more interested in prophecy than in previous ages, right? The closer you get to the end of the book, the more eagerly you're exciting because everything's kind of coming together. You're beginning to see it. It's like we're living in the fourth quarter. Or, or actually, I believe we're living in like the two-minute uh, warning, right? And so if we look at God's big picture plan of the ages, and we're going to come back to this, these dates in just a second, but the Bible calls these days the last days. So it's important to understand the distinction in Scripture between the last days and the end times. Those are not synonyms. The last days is the church age. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And that, if you look at a panoramic view of history, you, you see indeed that the only other age to come after this age is the kingdom, Right? So that's why this is called the last days. Then Christ comes back, takes the throne in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, and we're in to the kingdom. So we're living in the last days, and, 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 and especially for us, and I'm going to talk about this Sunday morning in the first hour, we're living in the last of the last days. That's what's so exciting. The, 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 the signs of the times are everywhere. But the Bible tells us in these last days that the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation is waiting to see who's God's and who's not. Who's a child of God and who's still a child of wrath. Who's trusted Christ and who hasn't. The revealing of the sons of God. And he goes on, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption. And again, as we said if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. So if you're having trouble with perspective in life, think about the Colossians passage we looked at a moment ago, and now this Ephesians passage. And see how they're tied to the return of Christ. Paul, uh, The writer of Hebrews says, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. So if we think about God's big picture plan of the ages, I, I want to just kind of walk you through uh, from Genesis to Revelation 
the shift in God's plan and how he's going to be operating in terms of the realm of human government. Because we are headed one way or the other towards a one world government. First to be led by the Antichrist and ultimately to be led by the Christ. Um, so uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is really the key to understanding the rest of the story. If you get Genesis 1 through 11 wrong, don't even bother to read the rest of it, honestly, because you're already off track. You're off track from the very beginning. And if you don't believe the first 11 chapters of the Bible, why would you believe anything else, right? And in Genesis 1 through 11, we see God's priority relationships. It starts with man-God. That's our number one priority is to our creator. Then it goes to husband-wife. If you're married, your second priority is to your spouse. Then it goes to parent-child. If you've been blessed to have children, your third priority is with your children. And then finally, and this is something that a lot of people forgot over the last few years, citizen government. Citizen government isn't the relationship there isn't even second to God-man. It's like third, fourth, right? So uh, we, we are not ever obligated uh, to obey the government, whatever it says. And that's a very, you know, imperialistic, American exceptionalist view of Scripture. Nobody in North Korea reads Romans 13 and says, well, we just got to do whatever the government says. Nobody in China reads Romans 13 and says, we just got to do whatever the government says. And nobody during the, all the regimes of the tyrannical, satanic leaders, you know, nobody in Germany said, oh, we just got to do whatever the government says. When the, the, when the Nazis came knocking, you got any Jews in here that didn't say, oh, shoot, Romans 13. Yeah, come on in. They're right in here in the closet. That's just silly. I have a podcast. If you search for it on our podcast channel, does Romans 13 teach we must obey the government at all costs? And so I encourage you to do that. So that's the priority relationship. But if you look at it in terms of the human government aspect, that fourth one, what we see is that it started with a globalist perspective. So, you know, you go back to Genesis 1. It was God in charge. There were no nation states. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. That's globalism. So if you look at a timeline of human history, I promised we'd come back to this. So let me just briefly uh, go through it. Uh, the Bible teaches that creation happened roughly 6,000 years ago. Now, I realize that some of you here may be shocked to learn that the earth is only 6,000 years old because that eugenicist uh, Darwin, who thought that anyone feeble-minded, anyone of color, anyone with a broken leg should be murdered and killed. That's what Darwin was. He was a eugenicist, not a scientist. We'll talk more about him in the later sessions. Um, but he started teaching us, uh, you know, that the world is millions and millions of years old, and we all evolved from a wet rock. No, I believe the Bible teaches the earth is, is uh, young. And so let me just briefly mention a, several compromises on the origin of man that cr even Christians have come up with along uh, through the years. Most Christians know enough at least to deny full-blown atheistic evolution, which completely disregards the Bible in its entirety and thinks the Bible is a myth. But sadly, false teaching has... Uh, crept in so that some Christians think, well, as long as you got a little bit of science and a little bit of Bible, somehow that's okay. And that's where theistic evolution comes from, equally satanic, equally wrong. And then some people teach, well, you got the day-age theory. That's yeah, a little more Bible, so we're a little better. No, you're still letting science eclipse the Bible. And then, of course, you got the gap theory popularized around the turn of the 20th century. It has a lot of Bible in it, but it still allows science to rule the day. And all of these views only came up post-Darwin, post when the world began to think we're too smart for our own good and the science knows better than the Bible. So you start with science and you got to twist the scriptures to fit science. Well, here's a thought. Let's start with the Bible 
And the Bible, as my good friend Russ Miller, the creation scientist, says, is a Christian's best friend. Because we're all looking at the same data. And, and the Bible is certainly, confer, science confirms the teaching of Scripture. So I believe in the whole counsel of God, no compromise. So with that uh, little caveat, uh, the creation begins, if you use today's dating system and overlay it through creation, uh, in 4004 B.C., so if we use the Bible and well-documented historical events and internal and external evidence, we find that the flood began approximately 4,371 years ago in the year 2348 B.C. In other words, it took less than 1,700 years, 1,656 years to be exact, after creation before God said, enough's enough. If you don't think depravity is a degenerative disease, think about that. It got so bad that God says, enough's enough, I'm going to destroy the earth except for righteous Noah and his family. Here we are, you know, 6,000 years later, and it's exponentially worse. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it only took man about 1,500 years to become so evil that, that God said he would destroy the earth. And uh, the Genesis 6 account is what really ultimately led to that uh, in 2468 when the angels left their proper domain. We don't have time to discuss that, but I've talked about it in other contexts. Um, so, you know, 120 years after the Genesis 6 account, God destroys the earth uh, with the flood. And so here we are in 2023, and it's been 4,371 years since the beginning of the flood. The flood then ended in 2347, and after the flood, that's when God's plan of the ages shifted from a globalist approach to a nationalist approach. And that's why we have the table of nations in Genesis 10. And the Tower of Babel. And by the way, we're still living today in this age of nationalism. We have nation states, and we ought to defend that. We don't have the mind of God. We're not here to usher in God's one world plan. We know it's coming, but it's coming when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes back and takes the throne. Until then, any attempt to try to take over the world and usher in a one world government is satanic. It's false. And we want to defend the, the nationalism that the Bible teaches. So you, then you come to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, about 100 years after the flood, we're at it again. This you know, slippery slope into abject evil was much faster this time. It only took about 100 years after the flood. And what do we read in circa 2242 B.C.? The whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. The Tower of Babel was a post-flood rebellion against God by Noah's descendants. And God judged them by dividing the single language in the time into multiple language families and as these groups spread out and became isolated then certain features like skin shade and eye shape became dominant in certain regions of the world now why did they build a tower you ever stop to think about that why did they build a tower to understand the reason we got to go back to one previous chapter chapter 10 and a guy named Nimrod Nimrod was the grandson of Ham the son of Cush Ham's son and he was one of, uh, Ham, Ham was one of Noah's sons. So the Hebrew name Nimrod means, quote, we shall rebel. So he was appropriately named. He was the first powerful king on earth. 
The first cities of his kingdom were cities like the famous Babylon, Nineveh, and Cala in Assyria. These all came from Nimrod. And Josephus tells us something very interesting about Nimrod. Remember who Josephus was, a first century historian, a contemporary of, of the time of Christ. It's not inspired, it's not part of the Bible, but it's a historical document that we can learn certain things from. And he talks about Nimrod. Here's what Josephus said. He, Nimrod, persuaded them to attribute their prosperity not to God, but to their own valor. And little by little transformed the state of affairs into tyranny. So this attempt to move from nationalism that God started after the flood to back to a one-world satanic system is nothing new. It's what Satan's been trying to do all along. Uh, little by little transformed the state of affairs into tyranny, holding that the only way to detach men from the fear of God, the reverence of God, was by making them continuously dependent upon his power. He threatened to have his revenge, his meaning Nimrod's, he threatened to have his revenge on God if he wished to inundate the earth again. For he would build a tower higher than the water could reach and avenge the destruction of their forefathers. Why did they build a tower? It had only been a hundred years since God destroyed the earth by flood. And they said, okay, we're going to rebel again, but this time we're, we're ready for you, God. We're going to build this tower so that if you flood the earth again, we'll escape it. That's what they did. So back to Genesis 11, the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they have all one language and this is what they will begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language. And he goes on to say, the Lord scattered them abroad and there, uh, from there uh, over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Babel means confusion in Hebrew because the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad. But as we return to God's plan for human government, we see that eventually we're going to come full circle once again from nationalism, which is where we are today, back to globalism. So God's big picture, globalism, nationalism after the flood, we're still in nationalism, eventually globalism. And this return to globalism will occur in two stages. First, it's going to be a satanic globalism. Daniel talks about this extensively in chapter 2 and chapter 7. Notice the fourth beast, the revived Roman Empire, will be different from all the other kings. It shall devour the whole earth. What's the Antichrist regime and, 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 and kingdom going to be? It's going to be a kingdom over the whole earth, globalism. Revelation, we read that the Antichrist is going to have authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Again, globalism. Um, the Antichrist is going to have his power from Satan himself and his throne and have great authority. He's going to deceive the whole world, Revelation 12 tells us. And then you get to chapter 20, and the good news is uh, he's going to be cast into the bottomless pit and shut up that he should deceive the nations no more because he is trying to take over all the nations. David, a thousand years before Christ, talks about this Luciferian conspiracy when he talks about how the kings of the earth are conspiring together and taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against God, Yahweh, and against Jesus, his eternal son, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. You see, Satan has control issues. He does not like the fact that God is sovereign. He didn't like it in heaven, and now that he's been kicked out, he doesn't like it on earth. And so he's been conspiring ever since with demons and uh, human accomplices to try to usher in 
his power and kingdom and break the bonds of God's control. So this return to globalism, though, will eventually come full circle as we started out the session talking about to a pre-fall Edenic state when he who sits on the thrones in heavens shall laugh because I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 72, one of only two psalms that are attributed to Solomon. Solomon speaks about his reign and anticipates the ultimate reign of his successor, Jesus Christ. And he says, let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Isaiah 9, 6, we often quote this passage at Christmas, but we don't think about the second coming implications of it. We know unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Right? That's first advent. But what about the government will be upon his shoulder? As you look around the world today, do you see all the governments of the world under the authority of Christ, the King of Kings? Hardly. So this is going to come full circle to, again, a divine globalism when of the increase of his government and his peace there shall be no end from that time forward even forever going back to daniel 2 in the days of these kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people it shall break in pieces and consume all these other kingdoms you know babylon persia greece rome the revived roman empire and it shall stand forever his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So if you think of an end times chart, we're going to come back to this chart again and again uh, the rest of the uh, weekend. But God's globalism plan starts after the rapture as the Antichrist then comes to the four positions himself, signs a seven-year treaty with Israel, rules for seven years, Christ comes back at the second coming, and ultimately ushers in the messianic kingdom. So that's uh, the end of session one. And again, I, I, you may have questions. I encourage you to jot those down and we'll come back uh, together for that. But before we take our break, let me just mention a couple of quick uh, announcements. First of all, my two latest books, one came out in October, one came out last March. So both of them out less than a year are Spirit of the Antichrist volumes one and two. Uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about this week and especially this afternoon uh, comes from those books, so I encourage you to check those out. The book that I mentioned a couple times this morning is What Lies Ahead. It's an end times overview uh, of eschatology, a biblical overview of, of eschatology. Uh, I mentioned the chart books. Those are out there. We have that also in digital form. If you are a teacher or you do presentations and you'd like the digital form of PowerPoints, you can get the same thing. It's over 100 of our most requested uh, charts. Brand new. We literally had them shipped here. We've not had these before. Uh, in fact, I just looked at them yesterday when we set up because we had them shipped to the church. Is our eight-part DVD series on what in the world is going on. And again, a lot of the material that we're going to talk about this afternoon uh, is in that session. If you're in the area, I'll be back in two weeks for the Orlando Prophecy Summit. I want to encourage you to uh, check that out. Uh, and you can go to, uh, their, to our website and click the link there, and it'll take you to their website. But excited to be a part of a larger group of folks that are speaking there. Uh, if you have not signed up for our podcast, you can go to any podcast provider. I don't care what you use, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, whoever your favorite podcast provider is. Search for Not By Works Ministries, and you can sign up, and we do several podcasts each week. Our two latest ones were with Jan Markell. Two weeks ago, we did one with her called Why God Laughs at the Global Elites. And then last week, we did The Spirit of the Antichrist, Part 2, Ruling from the shadows. We also have hundreds and hundreds of free videos which you can get to by going to notbyworks.org. 
and the free devotionals. Uh, I write a, a devotional each week. Uh, you can check out our online store. And, and if you, I'm saying this mainly for the folks that are live streaming with us because they, they're not able to come out into the lobby. And we also just recently had a group out of Canada that uh, offered to start providing some Not By Works merchandise. Remember, NBW stands for Not By Works, uh, the only way we can be saved. And uh, you can check that out at our website as well. So let me pray, and then we'll take a break. Uh, what do we want to do, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 10, 10 to 15 minutes? Um, and, uh, and we will come back together. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, great start to, to this conference and just to the survey of your word and why we're even here and why this should really matter to, to every believer. Pray that you'd raise up uh, men and women and young people that have a real interest in the urgency of the hour, and most importantly, we pray if there's one here within the sound of my voice that doesn't know your Son and our Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. And in simple childlike faith, they would place their trust in the only one who can save them. And so we ask your blessings now on the remainder of this conference, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.